You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. Today, we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which, you know, you could consider that, I don't know, I guess, an important topic for Christianity. I mean, it's like the very foundation of everything we believe. And now are we considering the resurrection of Jesus, we're considering specifically the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. What difference does that make? I mean, why should we care if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? And how is arguing for his resurrection really different in that context than anywhere else? To discuss this matter with me, I brought on Eric Chabot, who has written the book recently, The Resurrection of a Jewish Messiah. He has an MA from several evangelical seminary and spoken several times at the National Projects Conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is a graduate of a Cross-Examined Projects Instructor Academy and a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. He is an instructor at the Messianic Studies Institute in Columbus, Ohio, and an adjunct instructor at Xenos Christian Fellowship there as well. He has been doing outreach since 2004 and is the founder and director of Ratio Christi at Ohio State University and director at Columbus State University College Ratio Christi. He is a speaker for CJF Ministries and has spoken at numerous churches and other locations. He has written a short booklet on Is Yeshua the Jewish Messiah and co-authored a work called Does God Exist? Why It Matters. So, Eric, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, Nick. Good to be here again. Hope things are going well with you. Now, if uh, my audience doesn't know much about you and who you are, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing? Sure. I came to faith in... Jesus in my mid-20s. I was not raised in an overly religious home, just kind of attended a mainline denomination growing up off and on, but kind of had a nominal background. So I came to faith in my mid-20s. Ironically, when I did hear the gospel preached to me, it was from a, a Jewish believer who actually believed he was a past, he's a, actually a congregational leader here in Columbus uh, of a congregation. I was listening to his preaching, sitting there in the pew, kind of listening to the book of Matthew, and that's how I came to faith. And then shortly after that, I started to share my faith with a lot of people, just very excited, of course. I mean, who wouldn't want to share a relationship with God? And I got challenged by a lot of people, a lot of apologetic questions, a lot of objections. And then if we fast forward to about 2004 or five, around that range, I started doing some outreach at the Ohio State University here, which is a very large campus. And of course, many college students have a lot of objections. And so I started getting more into apologetics, just doing campus ministry. And then we like you said, we planted those two apologetic chapters here in Columbus. I'd live in Columbus with my wife, Lucy, and two kids, Elise and Jack. So I am a native of Columbus, but uh, we've had a lot of speakers into Ohio State, such as your father-in-law, Mike Lacona, William Lane Craig. We've done some debates, some other events. So we've been pretty active on both those campuses. And then I obviously have a specialty in reaching Jewish people since I did come to faith with um, from hearing the gospel. I'm a Jewish believer, but I also grew up 
in a fairly large Jewish community here in Columbus. So I had a lot of exposure to Jewish people. So I just have a background in some of the Messianic uh, stuff, some of the Messianic context of the faith and the Jewish background. So that's one area I kind of specialize in. But anyway, so that's a little bit about myself. Well, Eric, obviously the question that most people I think are wondering about right now is, do you still affirm the virgin birth, which I do affirm? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I affirm the virgin birth, <laughs> definitely. Okay, well, I was going to ask how you got into doing messianic apologetics, because usually when that comes up, I think two people, Michael Brown, then you, because uh-huh. there aren't a lot of people doing this. Yeah, that's right. Michael is the big guy. He's written that five-volume set answering Jewish objections to Jesus, which kind of sent mm-hmm. the or uh, put put everything on the map. I mean, mm-hmm. as far as really setting the bar there, and you can get those books. There's they're huge books, and there's a lot of reading there, but it's well worth it. Um. There's people that have dealt with Jewish objections a little bit here and there, but not anyone that really specializes in it. Of course, Michael is the big guy. There's some other people within the Messianic movement who do little things here and there. But for me personally, I was already interested in apologetics. And then when I started getting exposed to Jewish people and their objections and started answering them and started dealing with them, I just realized that, you know, it's just a natural progression of where I was at since I was already around Jewish people who believed in Jesus. I was birthed in that kind of environment as a new believer. So I started hearing the objections to Jesus from the Jewish community very early on, because when you have a burden to reach Jewish people, you got to know why they don't believe in Jesus. So, um, you know, that just kind of took me in that direction. I would consider myself a, a big wig. Michael is is obviously the one who's really uh, on the map in that. And I'm just trying to do some some smaller things, trying to get uh, people aware of it. Now, when I wrote the book, it was written not only for Jews, but it was written to Christians to help them know why the Jewish background of the resurrection matters and how to respond to some of these Jewish objections that we hear out there. Okay, we're going to get into that, but can you give us a little premier here? I mean, why is it called like, the resurrection of a Jewish Messiah instead of the resurrection of Jesus? What difference does it make that Jesus is the Jewish and then that he's the Messiah, both. Why should right. those matter? I gave that title because over the years, having taught on this and kind of been around for a while, I noticed that a lot of Christians are pretty quick to say Jesus is definitely the Savior. They, they affirm him as a Savior. We, you know, we preach the gospel. We want people to come to know Jesus as their Savior, ask him into your heart. He's your Savior. You know, We hear it over and over. So I think Christians are pretty good at affirming that. But when it comes to saying he's the Messiah, we kind of say it, we'll say, yeah, he's the Messiah, but we really don't know exactly what that means to say something like that sometimes. I think sometimes people think in the first century that when Jesus was walking around the temple, his parents' names were Mr. and Mrs. Christ. I've actually heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They said, hey, Jesus, you know, paging uh, Jesus, your parents are here, Mr. and Mrs. Christ. And mm-hmm. so we say Jesus Christ all the time. But what we're really saying is, you know, Jesus is the Christ, which is a translation from the word Christos and Mashiach, you know, the Hebrew uh, word for Mashiach. And the point is that I think that we need to affirm that Jesus, you know, if he's not the Messiah of Israel, he's not the Messiah of the nations as well. You can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the reason I call say he's the Jewish Messiah, because I do believe he's a Jewish Messiah. I believe he's the one that is talked about in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. And I believe that he is the one who helps Israel fulfill their calling in the world. He came into Israel. He didn't come into California or Hollywood or Columbus, Ohio or Atlanta, Georgia. He came to Israel. That's where he did his ministry. And that was the context of his faith. And so a context where our faith was birthed. And so 
it's just a natural thing to say whether he's the Jewish Messiah or not. I mean, he has to be the Jewish Messiah. He's the Messiah of Israel, Messiah of the nations. It's not one without the other. Yeah. I think it can also be something like it is in Islam, because if you read the Quran, you see affirmations that Jesus is the Messiah, but it never tells what that means or what difference it makes. Right, right. Well, that's right. And they also affirm the virgin birth, I believe, too, Nick. Which I do so, affirm. <laughs> but they don't affirm his death and resurrection, so that's mm-hmm. the problem. But, uh, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, remember that when you read the New Testament, there's a lot of passages after Jesus rose from the dead. Of course, they call him the Lord. You know, that's the main Christological title. You know, he's called Lord a lot, not Son of Man after his resurrection. You know, it's just in the Gospels. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think that Messiah is just something, it's talked about in the Gospels, the Messiah, they ask him if he's a Messiah, you know, the word's mentioned a few times, but, you know, I just think that we need to realize that when we say that, when someone says, do you you believe Jesus is a Messiah? If you say that to a Jewish person, they say no. Well, we have to ask them what they even mean by the Messiah, because obviously Mm -hmm. they might have a whole different criteria for what the Messiah is and what he does, as I talk about in my book. And so I just think that word gets missed a little bit in our conversations, also in apologetics as well, because when I was a new believer, I read Josh McDowell's stuff. And of course, he said there's 300 prophecies, right, pointing to Jesus in the Old Testament or another apologist would say that. But, you know, the more I looked into it, I think that you got to be very careful on how you interpret those because there's a context to each passage and you have to know if that's really missing in a prophecy. And there's just so much more to it than simply saying that Jesus fulfills this checklist of 300 mm-hmm. messianic prophecies. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes in our culture, our church culture, we forget the Jewishness of Jesus because you can hear a call for salvation and it totally skips over Israel in the Old Testament, it seems like you go straight from Adam and Eve to Jesus. And then with Jesus, you go straight to his death and resurrection. And I can't but think that N.T. Wright is right when he talks about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saying, you know, we spent some time on all that stuff before his death and resurrection, and we think it's kind of important. Maybe you should pay attention to it. Absolutely. Yeah. N.T. Wright's been a a good, uh, you know, someone who's really pointed that out in scholarship, getting, you know, the first century context of the faith. And so, yeah, I just I think a lot of times our faith is divorced from its original context and the way we present the gospel is kind of divorced from its context. I mean, if we just tell people the gospels, accept Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die. I mean, that 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 doesn't. That's totally divorced of its original context. I mean, take like Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, when Paul says, this is a gospel announced beforehand. Uh, Jesus announced in the Holy Scriptures that he was a descendant of David. He's now the Son of God, risen from the dead. I mean, you know, Paul doesn't even say anything there about heaven or anything. He just talks about Jesus is from the line of David. He's now been resurrected from the dead. He is now the Son of God. And this has been talked about in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so... I just think a lot of times the gospel presentations we give to people and we hear in churches are so devoid of any context, and I think that's really hurting people in the long run. Yeah, and it, it hurts our current life right now because it makes it seem so many times like the only point of becoming a Christian is where you can go to heaven when you die. Great. What about everything else in the, in the middle? What do I do right now? Right, right. Well, that is obviously true, and like you said, the canonical narrative sometimes is presented to people is just creation, fall, straight to Jesus, and then the second coming, and that's it. You know, we don't really talk about the Israel's history, you know, after the fall. We, we kind of divorce that out of or the Old Testament, and that creates a lot of problems in the narrative. And so, 
it's just bad teaching. It's poor discipleship. And, you know, there's been a lot of corrections uh, that have been given. There's a lot of materials out there that can help with it. But a lot of times we just don't use them. And I think the churches would really uh, do their people a lot of, uh, you know, a good service if they would just really tap into these resources to get the context of their faith. It hurts everyone in the long run if they don't get that. Yeah. So let's get into the book here. Now, one of the things you start with <clears throat> is oral tradition and oral memory. Because, I mean, Eric, don't you know that the Gospels, I mean, we can't really trust them. They were written, I mean, 30 years at least after the events that took place. I mean, would you accept an account of, say, the assassination of JFK that was written back in 1990s, if that was the first time you heard of it? I mean, why why should we accept an account that's a whole 30 years later? Right. Well, that's one of the things I talk about because I, I think that before I talked about the resurrection itself, I said that, you know, obviously in the book that you can't really talk about the resurrection without talking about the sources for the resurrection. You know, that's the yep. written sources and the oral sources. So as your father-in-law does as well in his big book. But, you know, Barbara Ehrman has done a, a lot with this, you know, talking about, you know, the Gospels are written 40, 50 years later. And, you know, we just can't trust them because the uh, the oral tradition is not a secure thing. We can't really know, you know, where the stories were fixed or stable. You know, they've been changed so much. So the challenge of oral tradition, oral memory is it is true that we were not there for the oral phase of the Jesus story. No one was there to see Jesus speak. We don't have any tape recorders or anything. And so we don't have access to the oral phase of the story. It is true. I, I agree with that 100%. All we have access to is the written phase. We have it in our New Testament. But I think that everybody knows that generally there is an oral phase of anything. I mean, before anything gets written down, that's just the way history works. That's the way life works. It's obviously orally told before it gets written down. And we do have some hints of it in the New Testament that Jesus obviously taught orally because, you know, given that he was a rabbi, it was a Jewish culture, they did learn to memorize large amounts of information growing up, re- memorizing the Old Testament, memorizing large portions of the Jewish scriptures, so they could memorize things. And so... We do see some of the oral tradition terminology passed on in the New Testament, as I talk about. And remember, Paul, of course, is our earliest resource for the resurrection, as I talk about. It's not the Gospels. It's Paul. And his letters are obviously written between like 48 and 65 AD, somewhere in that range. But the information he gets in the, those letters are even before that, meaning he's receiving the information about Jesus before he even wrote those things down. So one thing that we do want to think about oral memory is high impact events. Um, I think we know that a high impact event can certainly be remembered with great accuracy several decades later. Like for instance, my sister passed away when I was four years old. Um, I remember the day, it was 1973, and I remember that day clearly to this day. I can recall the whole day, the details of the day, because it was a high impact event, right? It stayed with me, and that's the way high high impact events work. And now it's interesting that Bart Ehrman, when he was talking to your father-in-law, uh, in an event over there in Chicago a few weeks back at uh, Kurt Gyros's event, um, he began to kind of start to say, well, we can't trust memory. Memory's unreliable. You know, we, we change it. We get it distorted. It gets distorted. Well, then after he got challenged a little bit by the other panelists like Craig Keener and your, your father-in-law and others, he then said, oh, no, we do get a lot of things in memory correct. Now, I agree that we can get a lot of things in memory right. So he kind of backtracked, you know, and agreed that we do get things correct in our memory, especially high impact events. And so I think that Jesus, who he was and what he did would definitely be a big high impact event. That just goes without saying. He left a lasting impression on his disciples, and they certainly could write down what he said and taught and did 
30, 40, 50 years later with accuracy. But in the end of the day, we do think there's reasonable evidence that there was an oral tradition going around before the written tradition. You know, he taught orally and they probably did tell the stories orally. And the thing is that they had somebody within that circle of influence, those disciples that most likely would correct the circle if the story was getting passed on incorrectly. We would, I can't say 100% for sure. We don't have anything in the Gospels that says this. I don't want to, you know, overstate my case, but it would seem that Jesus was not an ordinary person. It would seem that the disciples would want to get the story right, that it wouldn't be handed on in a sloppy fashion. Like, oh, well, whatever. It's just a story of teaching of Jesus. Let's just go ahead and distort it and get it wrong. Well, no, I think that they probably would want to get it right and they could correct each other if it was getting off track. So I think there's a chance there is like a, a stabilizing factor there in the oral circle, you know, the oral memory that's going on there. So we're doing a lot of work on oral tradition. There's a lot of models out there. We don't have access to that phase, but we are, a lot of scholars are working on it and coming up with some plausible scenarios, but it's a work in progress. So it's very interesting. You know, I'm thinking a couple of things about all this. First off, I agree with you definitely on what you said about high-impact events. If I asked you, what did you do on July 24th, 2010? I suspect you don't really remember that. Am I correct? Absolutely not. I don't remember a darn thing of what I did last year to that, that date. <laughs> well, I remember what I did because that's the day I married Allie. So that day stays oh, in my okay. mind. I remember it very well. And then when you talk about uh, Bart Ehrman... Yeah, I said this about his book, Jesus Before the Gospel. I just looked it up. He shares a right. story about uh, Gerhardson's teacher, Risenfeld, coming to Princeton Theological Seminary one time. Right. And how he presented a question about the raising of Jairus' daughter. That the guy says, where that he thinks is he's having two separate occasions. And he said, this doesn't make sense. But I said, you know, here's something interesting about this. This was an Ehrman, was a graduate student. So... This is probably in his 80s, since he received an MDiv in 81, a PhD in 85. Thus, we have a memory as at least 30 years old, no other eyewitnesses. Ehrman could even have a bias in it, and yet he says he clearly remembers it. Right. All while in a book arguing about how the oral tradition isn't that reliable. It's, it seems like, okay, so... You accurately remember something from 30 years ago, but you don't expect everyone else to accurately remember something. Right, right. Absolutely. It's very, that is very interesting. That scholar he mentions was the one who put out the book about he thought that there was a Jewish rabbinic model active in the time of Jesus that, you know, the uh, the rabbis obviously taught their students orally. Uh, you said what? Burgard. Uh, Voss. Yeah. He was the one who came out with that model, like a rabbinic model, and then some scholars pushed back and said, well, you know, maybe that's a little, you're reading the time of the the Talmud and the Mishnah, reading the rabbinical literature back into the New Testament, because that stuff was written after the time of Jesus, so maybe there's a chronological problem. So his model was, you know, then he responded, then it was corrected, and then he, you know, whether it's the exact model, who knows, but the point is that, it, you know, we have the New Testament alone, that Jesus was an authoritative rabbi, and we know that the way he taught with the techniques that he used, as I talk about in my book, that he could give them memories, use techniques to help them memorize things. I mean, he did do that in, in the way he taught. So it's I, I don't think it's a challenge for them to remember it, especially a high-impact event. So I think you're right with Ehrman's account with his book. you know, And, you know, Rob Bowman said that something very interesting in that panel discussion he had with your father-in-law was that we don't want to overgeneralize. And what that means is that Rob was saying, you know, we don't want to take a modern-day event or experience and then 
read that back into the New Testament, right? Like, well, this is the way it is today. I mean, you know, you'll forget something 10 days later or 20 days later, you know, then kind of read that back into the New Testament, assume that's the way memory works then. You know, that's really dangerous. So we don't want to do that. Yeah, I remember I responded to a meme just recently about going on the unit about how the events in the Gospels are recorded about 30 years. And I want to emphasize after they happen. I said, yeah, you know, you might be kind of surprised with this, but most historical accounts that we have today, they're written after the event takes place. We, we've just found that writing about the events before they take place doesn't seem as reliable. Right. Yeah, it's just a lot of problems. It's the same thing we deal with the reliability of the Gospels. A lot of people reading modern day expectations back into the New Testament, reading current events and current things, the way people record things and journalism and memory studies, that that seems to be, we can go ahead and then take that and read that back into the time of Jesus, and that gets a little challenging, as we know. There was an event where uh, Gary Habermas was visiting here once, and Mike and I went to see it, and I think it was speaking at Georgia Tech on resurrection. And a student raises her hands and says, you know, if this information was so important, why didn't someone just write it down immediately? And then to us, we think, that sounds like a good question. But it's really the wrong question to ask, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think that we also know the studies of buying papyri back then mm-hmm. just to write things down. You couldn't just grab a piece of papyri and just write something down, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of expensive <laughs> to get hold of something like that and write it down, right? They assume it's like today we have pads laying around with pens, right? We just write it down. That's not the way it was then, right? Right. And it also assumes that... Uh, that most people could read. The vast majority could not read. That's correct. So what I tell people is, okay, let's consider this. You have a way to win something. I mean, write something. That's, um, you want to get a word out. You can write it down, and that costs a lot of money. I mean, writing Galatians and sending it would cost about 500 bucks by today's standards. It is time-consuming, and it only reaches for percent of the population that can read. Or, you can do oral tradition, tell the story orally, which is free, reaches anyone who can speak the language, and is not time-consuming. Which one are you going to do? That's right. And, you know, in oral tradition studies have kind of evolved into social memory studies. They're kind of using that term social memory now um, yeah. with a lot of the oral tradition stuff. So sometimes they won't say oral tradition, they'll say social memory, which at the end of the day is just basically means there's a collective memory that's going on. You know, like there's a group memory. You know, they're they're remembering things together and they're telling them together. So yeah, I agree. I in that culture, I think oral memory and oral tradition was very common. I mean for a Jewish culture, having memorized so much of the Old Testament and going mm-hmm. to the schools that they went to growing up. It's not like they didn't offer an education to a lot of the Jewish students at that time, and you sought out a rabbi to teach you. That's what they did. They would they'd go find a rabbi, and you'd be his disciple, or what we call a Talmud, T-A-L-M-I-D. And in Jesus's case, he's different because he they don't seek Jesus out to be their rabbi. He's the one that calls them. He comes to them as the rabbi and says, follow me. And that's a little different than the other rabbis of that day. Yeah, one more thing I think we need to touch on is this whole idea of 30 years later, most people hear this and think, 30 years, that's a long, long time. But 
considering most works in the ancient world, that's a very short time, isn't it? Yeah, well, even if it is 30 years, so what? I mean, you can't remember something 30 years later with, mm-hmm. with a high-impact event. I know people that can remember things 50 years later. Holocaust victims remember things from the Holocaust that are still alive today. There's not many witnesses left. They've been dying off, but they can remember that event. Like, Think how many years ago that was. Mm-hmm. So I think 30 years is really not that big a deal, but I just don't know why people are caught up on that you know, issue, but, you know, just have to keep telling the same old stuff and see if they can understand it, but it just takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Let's start getting into the written evidence that you share, and you start with Paul. Now, there are a lot of people who get very suspicious of Paul because, first off, you know, he was someone who was a persecutor, and why should we trust him? And some people say he was one who invented for Christian religion, and then there are some people who say, well, he latched on this new movement because he wanted to get, have social status or something like that, or even he had seizures or some mental condition that led to this. Right. Yep. Those are the, well, there's many other objections too, but <laughs> yeah, I started with Paul because like I said, he's the earliest, he has the earliest accounts for the resurrection of Jesus's letters are early and they're not gospels. Obviously they're written to different audiences, addressing different communities, addressing different doctrinal issues, different challenges they had. So they're not going to give us as much information about Jesus as the gospels, obviously. But as I note in my book, there are some historical markers of Jesus's life that are talked about in Paul's letters, such as of course his death and resurrection, but some other issues like he's from the line of David and, you know, he had brothers and things like that. I list them in my book. So it's kind of interesting within the Jewish community after the time of Jesus, you know, Paul's not talked about at all in the rabbinical literature. Um, He's kind of viewed as kind of like a heretic in a way. He kind of came along and uh, yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. A lot of Jewish people, Jewish scholars even think Paul's the one who kind of started this new Christian religion. He came along, Jesus kind of taught the Torah and Jesus was his Jewish teacher and Paul came along and just started this whole new thing. You know, he's kind of in conflict with Jesus, as some of the scholars say, or some even Jewish scholars, even Muslims say. He's, there's like a conflict between his teachings and what Jesus taught, and that's just nonsense, because there's plenty of harmony between both of them. And if you study them more thoroughly, you'll see that Paul did not distort any of Jesus's teachings. And it's going to be really hard to make a case that we even have a separate religion called Christianity outside of the Jewish world uh, at the time of Jesus or at the time of Paul. We just have Jewish groups at that time, as I talk about in my book. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. You have these different sects, these Jewish sects. And, you know, Jesus comes along with his following and Paul has the sect of the Nazarenes in the book of Acts. And they're really just part of the Jewish world. They're not really considered like this whole brand new religion like we use today in, in like world religion textbooks. That's We're reading that back in the New Testament, like we have Judaism and Christianity today as two separate religions. That That's not really the way it was at the time of Jesus or Paul. Now, obviously you have some new things happening, the new covenant and some new, t- in some, uh, the kingdom of God's you know, coming and things. I'm not saying that nothing's new, but what I'm saying is to look at them as two completely separate religions that Paul came along and started this brand new religion is really, it's going to be challenging in light of what we know about Second Temple literature now. So, you know, as far as any kind of psychological disorder, hallucination theory, I know Gary Habermas has written about that. I don't see any evidence for any kind of conversion disorder, anything that happened psychologically. Of course, it's awfully hard to psychoanalyze anybody in antiquity anyway, because we were that's a long time ago. But uh, Paul, we don't, as I say in my book, we don't know why he persecuted the early believers. There's no 
he doesn't give like a set of reasons. He doesn't give a list. You know, he says, I persecuted the early community because of this, 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 and this. He doesn't really say. We could probably infer that he was not happy with them tampering with the Torah in any way because the Torah was one of the marks of Jewish identity. Um, anything that comes along and kind of challenges that where Jesus is fulfilling the Torah or replacing the Torah, whatever you want to say, could probably give Paul a headache. Also, just causing uprisings. You know, the early community was preaching out in the streets and the public square that may have not kept the peace in Rome under Roman rule very good, and Paul was concerned about keeping the peace. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he wanted to kind of shut them down. Or maybe it's because they're proclaiming Jesus as this crucified Messiah, and Paul found that to be abhorrent, that this is actually the Messiah, the one who was persecuted, or the one that was hanging on that tree, the Deuteronomy says is a curse by God. And so maybe he was upset about that, or maybe it's the fact they're proclaiming him as the Lord, which is kind of blasphemous within Judaism, you know, proclaiming a man as a deity. So we don't know for sure exactly why Paul persecuted them, but we know that he did do it. And uh, we know that we need an explanation for what happened to him. And that's what we do with apologetics, like what happened to him? Why did he turn around and start following Jesus after all that persecution? And obviously we think the resurrection can account for that. I mean, the death of Jesus would not have gotten Paul motivated to follow him. If it's just Jesus has died and that's it, it would have to be something else. And obviously we believe the resurrection accounts for that. Yeah, I remember reading a book years ago by a scholar named Pamela Eisenbaum called Paul Was Not a Christian, the original message of Mr. Stratopoulos. It's a very good book, but as I kept going through, one thing I noticed in the book I thought was a blind spot was she never defined what a Christian was exactly. It's amazing. Like, well, if Paul identifies as a Jew, which he did, then obviously he wasn't a Christian. And it, that seems to be this whole dichotomy you were talking about. I think Paul just dying breath said, I'm a Jew and I'm a faithful Jew. But if you gave him an idea of a Christian today, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm that too. Yeah, that, that, that book was tricky. Um, I do have that book. And a lot of it, it boils down to how you define the word Christian, because you know today, just as we talked about how our faith is divorced of any context, a lot of people, when they hear the word Christian, it just, it really is nothing Jewish about it. I mean, you know, if you think, if, if you call yourself a Christian, you say, well, I follow the Christ, I follow Jesus, he's the Jewish Messiah. I mean, that that alone is hard enough for a Christian to grasp today, because our faith is so divorced from its original context. And so, I don't mind saying Paul was a Christian as long as we clarify what we mean by that, because I think a lot of times within Jewish circles and with Christian circles, we assume that he left his Jewish identity behind. He had no longer any Jewish identity, right? He became a Christian. He converted. That's what they say. But in a lot of studies now, what we say with Pauline studies, we say most likely he had a call to follow Jesus, not necessarily he converted from one religion to the other, because they just didn't have those categories back then, you know, where you just, you leave Judaism, you convert to Christianity. Now, it's not like it is today. It's a different uh, culture, different time. And those categories really don't exist. Even religions is a category, using saying different religions, that that doesn't even exist really at that time. So, you know, I don't mind saying that as long as we explain what we mean, you know, when Paul does that. I think he definitely still had a Jewish identity and he observe certain Jewish things, but, you know, obviously his core identity is in Jesus. I mean, that is, we're not saying his core identity isn't in Jesus. Of course it was, but he didn't get rid of necessarily Jewish uh, ethnicity or Jewish culture along the way. I think since we've probably got a lot of people who listen to this show do apologetics on a popular level, and no doubt they encounter the uh, crackpot mythicist crowd that often says, well, geez, why didn't Paul give us any details about Jesus' life? Since you brought that up, it would be good to address, 
why didn't Paul tell us more about the life of Jesus? Right. Well, as I say in my book, and as I just mentioned, the, his letters are written to different communities. They're not biographies like Matthew, mm-hmm. Mark, Luke, and John. So we know that he doesn't have to worry about establishing whether Jesus was a real person or anything. Right. I mean, his audiences obviously granted he gr- granted that they knew that that Jesus was a real historical figure. He wasn't like some mythological construct. So he didn't have to hammer out evidence that Jesus was a real person or anything. But you know, he does mention things about Jesus's life in his letters, like I list in my book. You know, he says Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. He says he's a direct descendant of King David. He mentions Jesus being born of a woman in Galatians 4. He mentions Jesus was born and lived in poverty in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He was born under and lived under Jewish law in Galatians 4. He had a brother named James. He had 12 disciples. Uh, He mentions Peter as a spokesman for the 12. He mentions Jesus's humility and meekness in 2 Corinthians 10, 1. Uh, He mentions Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. Well, he uses that analogy, the way he wants believers to be transformed inwardly. He uses the word Abba, you know, the same thing that Jesus used. He um, talks about Jesus ministering primarily in Israel in Romans 15. He talks about Jesus instituting the Passover, the Last Supper, I'm sorry, the meal there in 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about, of course, that Jesus was killed. Um, he talks about he testified before Pontius Pilate. He talks about his death on the cross in Philippians 2.8. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. So he does give some historical markers for Jesus's life. It's not like he doesn't tell us anything about Jesus. It's just that um, when you have these crackpot mythicist views, you know, they think that uh, Jesus, Paul talks about this heavenly Jesus, right? He's a spiritual Jesus and not the earthly Jesus. So they make this dichotomy between the earthly Jesus and the heavenly Jesus, which is unnecessary because they think Paul makes all these theological claims about Jesus, you know, his deity and stuff. And they think that's not based on earthly events. But that involves a methodological issue, as we both know the Mithras use. It's more of a methodological issue, and it's flawed from the get-go. Okay, well, let's look some also at external evidence. Is there any evidence outside the Gospels and letters of Paul that should make us treat them seriously at all? Because, you know, so many times you would say, well, this just reads like a book of fairy tales. Why take it seriously? Right, well... You know, as I say in my book, I don't talk about really tons of evidence outside the Gospels as far as for Jesus's resurrection, because we don't have a ton of documents talking about Jesus's resurrection outside the New Testament. As we both know, if we did, they'd probably be written by Christians, and then people blow those off because they think the Christians are biased, and you can't trust those sources, right? So they want some objective, perfectly neutral source, you know, out there that talks about Jesus's resurrection outside the New Testament. There's not a lot there. Justin Martyr talks about the uh, the Jews stealing the body. I'm sorry, the um, the Jews saying the disciples stole the body. But I only mention um, Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger. You know, some of these authors, you know, that mention some events of Jesus's life in my book. I don't mention anything about the resurrection because there's not a lot there. But there are some sources that mention some things about Jesus outside the New Testament. I wouldn't say they're as good as the New Testament, but I think there are some writings to talk about the life of Jesus, um, you know, his death. And, uh, you know, and of course, in Josephus, the one that we can trust in Josephus, there's some some ones that are contested, as we know, but talks about, you know, John the Baptist, it talks about James, the brother, talks about Pilate, talks about Jesus was crucified. But, you know, there's not a ton there about his resurrection outside the New Testament. But there is some information there about just his earthly life and some of those those documents from these ones I mentioned in the book. So that's where I kind of go with that. Yeah, I think one of the best places to go is the book of Acts. Right. Since Luke is such a 
first-rate historian, as has been said, and archaeology really has been a friend of the New Testament in so many ways. That's right. Plenty of archaeological evidence for the Book of Acts and Luke's writings, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk some more, so then, going through the book. Your next chapter here is about causation as well. You know, why do things happen where they happen? And you have a bit here on influences on the Gospels and the world of the New Testament, such as Hellenism, and then, of course, Judaism, and then the pluralism of the society around them. And what are, what are do you have in mind when you think about causation in this sense? Right. Well, you study history. We know that historians study cause and effect relationships. That's what you mean by causation. They see an effect somewhere, an event, and then they try to infer a cause for like what caused that thing to happen. We do that in science as well, too, obviously. So you know, they see an event like the birth of the Jesus movement in the first century. They see this group of Jews preaching the gospel and they publicly they see this new religious movement starting. They they're gonna ask, you know, what caused this movement to get off the ground? Like what what caused it to start? What were the sociological factors? What were the historical factors, the theological factors? And they're gonna look for the best explanation for what you know got this movement going and what kept it going and what sustained it you know what were the challenges and so that's all we do with causation looking at cause and effect relationships which is a very good question because we always want to provide a good explanation for why the movement got started i mean or some people call it like the birth of christianity or what you know got this thing going and so when i talk about that in this chapter i i kind of talk about that and then i talk about how jesus's followers there is something else we see. They begin to kind of there's there's a transformation in their devotional practice that has been talked about by a lot of scholars that specialize in the deity of Jesus and looking at this issue. That there seems to be these Jews who all their lives that um, that granted there are many Jewish sects as I say, but they all had some things in common. They all worshipped one God. They all believed the Torah was their authority. They all believed that idolatry was prohibited. You're not allowed to worship a man. You're not allowed to worship anything other than one God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they did have some commonality within those those different sects. But as I say, something happened to this sect, this these Jews who followed Jesus, that they began to pray to him and call out to him as they call out to the God of Israel, and they worshiped him to the extent that there are, is some evidence. That, I mean, praying is an act of worship too, but I mean, they seem to— obviously see Jesus in a different light. They called him Lord, you know, not just Lord like the, the sir, like he's just an authority as a sir, like a, a a special man. I mean, really, he is a divine figure. And so I was just talking about this chapter, like what caused that? What's the best explanation? Now, they were surrounded by Hellenism, no doubt, which is the impact of Greek culture on the Jewish community. But it seems that that really didn't lead to their worship of Jesus because they seem to still maintain their Jewish identity and their core beliefs. And so I just kind of talk about that and I unpack that and I talk about how, you know, there's not good evidence that there was the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus was borrowed from mythological constructs. Um, you know, mythological figures has talked about, has been talked about the internet many times. We've been answering it for years. I don't know why mythers still use that, but they still use it. So I talked about religious plagiarism. I said that's not good evidence, you know, that that, we, that can account for uh, Jesus' deity. And I just talk about the best explanation was that the the resurrection of Jesus really 
change that. You know, obviously we see in the book of Acts, they start, you know, really uh, worshiping the Lord. It's not that Jesus wasn't called Lord before the resurrection, the gospel he's called Lord. But the point is that you really see a change in their devotional practice. In Paul as well, you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Hero Israel, he says there's one Lord, one God, and Jesus is the Lord now. You know, he says there's many gods, many lords, but there's one God, one Lord, Jesus, Jesus the Christ. And so, you know, that's Paul basically affirming monotheism. There's one God, but yet now Jesus fits within that that framework. And so something had to happen to kind of transform their thinking. I think that Jesus's resurrection can account for that. Mm -hmm. Now, one area we also need to touch on, because I'd really like to spend the second half of the show talking explicitly about the resurrection is the manuscripts themselves, because People will often say on oh, non the idea of borrowing. Like, we have several manuscripts of the New Testament. That's true. But none of them agree with one another. They're all different. Eric, if all the manuscripts we have are different of the New Testament, how can we trust anything they say? Well, just go study Daniel Wallace. There, There's your answer. <laughs> um, yeah. Textual criticism is an art, and I, I can only think of five or six people that do that for a living, and Daniel Wallace is one of them that actually reads the Greek manuscripts, right? And he studies them, you know, and, and develops his, uh, you know, his explanations for the differences in the Greek manuscripts. But we have um, 5,700 Greek manuscripts ranging from a small fragment, a few verses of the entire New Testament, then there are approximately another 20,000 manuscripts of different length and detail as for translated from Greek into other Middle Eastern, Eastern, or Southern European languages. So I think we know the differences in these manuscripts, and I think that's what textual scholars like Daniel Wallace does. They can put them up against each other and see what the differences are, whether it be a scribal error, whether it be missing a, a letter or something like that. But even Bart Ehrman has admitted that none of the changes or none of the differences affect any major Christian doctrine. And so I don't really know anything in there that's really detrimental to our faith. I mean, there are differences. But like I said, we know that the, most of those have been dealt with with textual criticism. Even as I say in my book here, Phyllis Schaff said, of the 400 words that are contested, the 40 lines, which is about 400 words in the New Testament that are contested, none of them affected any article of faith or precept of duty, which is not abundantly sustained by other undoubted passages by the whole tenor of Scripture teaching. So now the one thing I do want to say is the same in my book is that sometimes Christian apologists will say we have all these manuscripts. You know, we've got more manuscripts than any other thing in antiquity, right? And they kind of, uh, you know, try to compare them to other writings. Um, you know, just because we have a lot of manuscripts doesn't – that's not our argument that makes Christianity true or it means that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The argument is that – that's one line of argumentation we use with the rest of the New Testament t tests, right? We say that the manuscripts have been transmitted accurately, but it's not the only one. And remember, Mormonism could have 50,000 manuscripts, early manuscripts, right, for what happened with Joseph Smith. But you and I know the content inside those manuscripts we don't agree with. We think it's false. So even if you have tons of manuscripts, you have to look at the content, what it's saying. And we believe the content in the New Testament is true as well because that's verifiable by other historical means. So I think that's the way we want to approach that. Well, let's do talk about briefly about three problems supposedly with the New Testament manuscripts. And these are the three that always come up. That's uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20, the pericope of a woman caught in adultery, and the Johannine comma in 1 John. 
Yeah, I don't mention those in my book. I don't I don't go into those very great detail. Yeah. You can talk about them if you want, but I didn't mention those specific ones. I know Dan yeah. Wallace talks about those, yeah. but I I didn't d- deal with those specifically. If you want to talk about them, we can, but I, I didn't talk about them in the book. Yeah, yeah, I figured we could just talk about them briefly. And my main point when people present these is, you know, you're telling us that this is something different from what was in the original. That tells us you have a really good idea of what was in the original. That's how you can recognize changes have taken place because you can see what has been added and what has been subtracted, as it were. And this whole thing about these being additions to a text, it's not new. This was known long before our time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I looked into that a ways back. I'm trying to remember what I what I found out about that, but I was reading some of Wallace's work on that, but I know that he's covered all those differences there and uh, Phil Comfort's another guy. So I don't really, I didn't think it was anything substantial or anything that really damaging to our faith from what I remember. You agree with that? Oh yeah, definitely. And unfortunately there are people who really do stress us. I've got a friend who's really doing well in Christian projects now, but he was raised in, a hyper-fundamentalist background, and so that really started to ravage his faith was when he found out that the Johannian comma wasn't original. Right, right. And then you have people like Frank Zender who say, well, geez, this leaves us without any any basis for doctrine of a trinity, which, as Dan Wallace says, is just stupid. Well, it is stupid. They overstate their case. I mean, you know, you'd have... Any any belief you have about anything in the Bible has to be based on the totality of Scripture. I mean, we look at the wider context, and so, you know, you can't just base your whole belief on one, or even if you're, um, I'm sorry, base your unbelief on one verse or one little thing. I mean, that would just be bad exegesis and bad hermeneutics. Muslims do that all the time, too, when you talk to them sometimes. You notice that. They, they kind of pull one verse Say Jesus isn't God because it says right here, blah, 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 and that kind of settles it, right? But you have to look at the totality of Scripture of what it says about anything in our faith. Yeah. Now let's move on to the next chapter. I mean, when we get to the second half, like I said, we're dive into the resurrection itself. And this is the importance of a worldview. And this could be a shock to some people because if you go up to the average person on the street and ask, what's your worldview? Most likely they won't know what you're talking about. But everyone has a worldview, don't they? Oh, yeah. Everybody has a worldview. A worldview is just the way you, you view reality. It's your outlook on life, you know, as I talk about in the book. And I'm not sure if everybody's worked out their worldview as far as, like, they put it together. But everybody has some worldview. The problem that you and I have is that when we're dealing with people in the culture trying to talk to them about our beliefs and trying to get them to think about their worldview is that they're just – sadly, they can be kind of lazy about it. You know what I mean? They're just kind of like, well, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, maybe I'll try. Maybe I believe this and that. But, you know, I don't know. And I'm kind of busy and it just doesn't matter. Well, as I say in the book, your worldview impacts everything all around. It impacts the way you vote. It impacts the way you raise your family. It impacts your decisions. It impacts how you use your money. It impacts everything. And so when we say we have like a biblical or theistic worldview, we think that that worldview answers the fundamental questions of reality in a more coherent, comprehensive fashion than other uh, alternatives, such as atheism, materialism, or naturalism, or whatever. And some of those worldview questions, as I mentioned, are like origins, where we come from, you know, what's wrong with humans, there seems to be something wrong with the human condition, you know, what about redemption, how do we fix the world, issues of morality, history, what happens to us at death and meaning and purpose. So 
all those worldview questions are going to play a role in how you live your life. And so, yeah, you're right. A worldview matters. People have one. They just sometimes haven't worked it out as far as formulated what it really is. And sometimes they're a little lazy about it. So we're there to try to help them. One idea that comes to my mind a lot when I see this kind of thing popping up is what I call atheistic presuppositionalism. <laughs> and that's a position that a lot of atheists have say, I am an atheist. Because I'm an atheist, I'm rational, because only irrational people believe in deities and things like that and miracles. Therefore, all my thinking must be logical and rational. And since you are a theist and a Christian, you disagree, you must by definition be irrational and illogical. And anything you believe must be irrational or illogical. Because, you know, if you are a person of reason, where you will ipso facto be an atheist. And they, they don't come out and say explicitly, but that is the exact vibe that I get from so many of these people. Yeah, that can happen. And it's still out there. I mean, you've been around a while and I have too. I mean, we were even, I think I met you even back, I mean, we've known each other for a while. I mean, you remember back when the, the new atheism was really hot, like 2008, oh, yeah. 2009. It's kind of faded a bit, but there's mm-hmm. still some remnants of it around, <laughs> as we know. But yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually writing a response right now to uh to Richard Dawkins' latest book. Right. Yeah, look forward to that. That's good. Mm. That's good. You need to grow up. Grown-up people don't believe in God, Nick. (laughs) As far as, like, what's rational, it's almost like you almost have to define what they mean by rational. Do you mean, like, rational means that what I believe is based in reality? You know, does it mean to have a true belief, wanting to have true beliefs? I mean, we try to acquire rational beliefs because we want to believe things that are true. Well, yeah, I would agree that that's fine. I mean, I like looking, I like to be rational and believe things that are true. But, you know, and I know once you get down to with atheism and atheists, a lot of times when you say that, you know, how do you define reality or what do you mean by rational? And they say, well, I'll believe things are based on evidence. Then we're back to the same old issue, how we define evidence, how we define proof, who gets to define what it is, what are our presuppositions and you know, how we approach that topic is the key. And so a lot of times they try to define the rules or set the rules and you got to play by the rules. And it's back to some sort of logical positivism, which has been dead forever, or some sort of hardcore evidentialism that uh, they don't allow any wiggle room. It's just about a lot of its definition of terms with them. And, you know, you've you've done so many times, I know. So it's a lot of just defining their terms. Yeah. And I I often have a saying... I, I want to be clear, this doesn't apply to all atheists. I know some atheists who are very thoughtful readers and thinkers oh, yeah. and willing to engage with the other side. But the sad majority I've met are not like this at all. It is a highly emotional atheism from what I see. And I often take the words of Jesus and paraphrase them for the people I encounter. says, these people are no reason with their lips, but their heads are far from it. Oh, their heads are far from Yeah, yeah, your par- yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, a lot of those people on the internet, I don't do too much um, evangelism apologetics on the internet. I mean, I have a blog, of course, I write on there, but I don't really get into debates as much as I used to on the internet. I just find that that can be an upward, uphill battle, you know, with some of these these people with the emotions and just the lack of um, communication and not defining their terms correctly. It's not that I don't think you can do internet evangelism apologetics. I just think that it's more challenging than doing it outside like I do on a campus, talking to people face to face. It just seems it just seems so hard sometimes on Facebook and other venues to try to debate these topics with with people like the ones you're encountering. 
But, you know, if someone can do it, I wish them well. I just I've kind of backed away from that a little bit over the years. But, you know, I certainly will deal with them. It was a well worth top. It's something worth dealing with. So it just depends. Yeah, what it is. I, I've reached a point also where I start choosing my bad words very carefully because it, it can be a waste. Sometimes I I talk about doing these kinds of debates. I said it's kind of like watching a slinky go down the stairs. It's really kind of fun at first, but then after a while, you realize it's, go- it's just going to be the same old, same old thing. Right, right. Yeah, that's right, and that's what happens all the time. So I just I talk to plenty of atheists on campus, and you know there are some very thoughtful atheists. I agree. You never want to stereotype anybody. We don't like it when they do that with Christians, but. I'd say one thing that's positive about it is it makes Christians work harder on their thinking and their critical thinking skills and think through what they believe and examine their beliefs. And I don't have a problem with that. And I know you don't have a problem with that. It's right. just a question of how how far we want to go with them and then letting them define the terms and the rules. Because you know and I know sometimes they just define evidence as something hardcore, empirical, or science-based. You know, that just yeah. leads to all kinds of issues. And they don't like philosophy a lot of times. Right. And then we're back to philosophy, and that becomes a headache trying to talk to him about that, as you know. Except for when it comes to abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. It's very strange. All of a sudden, philosophy is king. That's right. Right. It just depends who you're talking to. But there's some good atheist academics out there, as we know. And, you know, when I read them, I tend to get more out of what they're saying than generally, you know, sometimes these Internet conversations. So it's very tricky. You know what I mean? You have to know how to use your time well. So what are some steps do you think we as Christians can be doing to build up our worldview, to improve our worldview? Because that's why I said every single one of us, we all do to some extent have an imperfect worldview. We believe some things that are wrong. What can we do to learn how to best build up our worldview properly? Well, I can only say for me, since I've read a lot of worldview books, I think it comes through study then weighing those beliefs out, trying to like take them out in the, the world around me and trying to see if they are matching up with reality. There's three worldview tests that, well, there's many tests, but I say I'll just give a few here. There's one test, you know, that your belief system has to correspond to reality, that we make beliefs in our worldview. They should correspond to the real world, meaning that there's evidence for them and they're factually adequate. Or we call it the test of factuality as well. So I think that's something that's obviously when it comes to apologetics, we're always examining that one because new evidence is coming in, new data. You know, we're finding out new things, whether it be in science, history or philosophy. And we're always trying to reevaluate, you know, that that area continuously. So that's okay. That's part of definitely developing our worldview. The second test would be existential viability, where our worldview definitely matches up with the existential questions. It brings meaning, hope, purpose, those basic existential needs. And I think that we can live those things out in the world around us and see if our worldview passes that test, because we all are challenged in that area. Many days we might wake up and like, hey, you know, I don't feel like I have a purpose today. But, you know, we know that our worldview is true because God has spoken through Jesus's resurrection. And that's true factually, even if we don't feel it that day. And then we have another worldview test, which is the most common one, is the issue of pragmatic living or practicality. And that's whether a worldview can be lived out in the culture around us. And I think that most college students that I deal with today, most people in general, are are using a pragmatic test for everything. That means that, like, Nick, you know, Nick, it's really great. You have all this evidence for the resurrection. Man, you're so good explaining the resurrection. But at the end of the day, I just want to know what difference does this make in my life? You know, what practical difference? And so a lot of times we're dealing with people on the practical issue. And I think that we need to um, – 
kind of bringing it around to, you know, if this is really true, Jesus rose from the dead. This really happened factually and it corresponds reality. We base our faith based on what Jesus did and his resurrection and his teachings. And it could still be true, even if a Christian fails in their behavior, right? And so I just think that sometimes we, um, we, we're really relying on that pragmatic test. And I think sometimes it's getting people tripped up. And so I think, you know, you don't, you and I wouldn't be a Mormon just because it works out for us, right? It makes a difference in our lives. We're not Mormons because we don't think it's like the, the evidence for Mormonism is so bad as far as like the evidence for the Book of Mormon. And there's some really serious, you know, issues with Joseph Smith that we probably will never be Mormons, even if Mormons are really kind to us and are very, have a good practical faith, like it lives, it's lived out in a way that looks commendable. But we know deep down that that belief doesn't correspond to reality. And so that's what I think we need to challenge people on is how to develop some of these worldview tests and, and take them out in the real world, world and apply these tests. That's what I try to do. I definitely agree about this importance. And I encourage you also to be readers. Right. Because, I mean, some Christians will be surprised and say, well, I've got my Bible. Yeah, okay. Learn from other people as well. That's what you do every Sunday when you go to church and hear a sermon anyway. Right, right. Absolutely. I think reading is crucial. And I know that I wouldn't know anything about a worldview if I hadn't read books. I'm still reading books on worldview. I just read a book last year. I reviewed it for InterVarsity. Um, so worldview analysis and reading is fundamental. But you and I know that, you know, if we commend people to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind or bring that up, we sometimes have to lay it out what that even means. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people just get their information from quick articles or YouTube clips. Or memes. Or memes, right. And we're trying to get them to be readers. Because if they don't read, they're not going to... It's just, it's very hard to be a disciple of Jesus if you do not read. And audiobooks are okay too, I guess. But I'm just saying, I think reading is very crucial. Yes, I affirm the virgin birth. Like minded when you're listening to Deeper Waters podcast, we got Eric Chabot on talking about his book Resurrection of the Jewish Messiah. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Stephen Parrish on talking about his book Atheism A Critical Analysis. I have that book. Mm hmm. Good one. It's good. So, I have it. So uh, let's get now into the resurrection here. The resurrection. First of all, you got a chapter of resurrection in Jewish thought. What did it mean for an average Jew to say a resurrection had taken place? If you go to the Old Testament or the, the Jewish scriptures, there's nothing there really, a, a ton of scriptures about an individual resurrected Messiah. As I say in my book, you know, there may be some hints of it at the end of Isaiah 53, you know, about the servant of the Lord being raised up by God or exalted. Um, it's a little debated, you know, but it's obviously not, there's just the point is there's not a ton of explicit texts in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah rising from the dead. So, well, most Jewish people at the time of Jesus thought about resurrection. They thought they thought about corporate resurrection, you know, the, the resurrection of Israel or the restoration of the nation. And so a lot of times they didn't think so much of an individual rising from the dead. And so, you know, as I say in my book, I point out some of the passages like in Daniel 12, 1 to 2. I talk about Ezekiel, some passages in Ezekiel about the dead bones and things like that. And so the thing is that we have to understand is that when you look at Israel's history— in the Old Testament was, 
you have all these exiles. You know, they're they're given the covenant. Of course, they disobey, and God exiles them out of the land. And the goal is to get back to the land, right? And so they keep getting exiled. But for them, exile was kind of like a death. You know, it's like we say death is just dying. You know, when you die, physically die. But for them, that was metaphorically kind of like a death for them to be in exile, right? And then resurrection would be thought of like the restoration, like going back to the land is being restored, right? And so death and resurrection for them was kind of like tied to being in exile and being restored to the land. You know, sometimes we think resurrection is only about going to heaven or only about raising up of a person, you know, to new life. But also it was bigger for Israel's history. It was about that issue of exile and being uh, restored, you know, to the land. And so Ezekiel talks about that as well in his uh his writing, Ezekiel 36 and 37. And so I talk about that a little bit. And then I would say um, when it comes to Jewish thought today, I mean, there are other passages about resurrection in the Old Testament. I mean, there's a book of Job has some passages there and a couple other ones. Psalm 16, David talks about the Holy One will be raised up, you know, which Peter quotes in Acts 2. So there's some little hints of it. Isaiah 26 is another passage that has a resurrection text. But the point is that eventually resurrection did get cemented in the Jewish mind. I mean, it, it turns out like when you read the Jewish literature, rabbinical literature, they do have the resurrection in there, like in the Jewish prayers. And, um, you know, I talk about how they do believe in the resurrection. They talk about to this day within Judaism. So it's not the resurrection is foreign today as well. I mean, it was in the Jewish scriptures. It's there today. Now, a lot of Jewish people are atheists, so they don't or they're secular. They don't necessarily think about resurrection. Also in the book, I talk about some of the intertestamental literature. I talk about some passages for resurrection, the book of Enoch and second Baruch and some other passages, you know, that definitely spoke about resurrection, some passages in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, you know, resurrection is there, but there's nothing there, as I say, that's explicit about a Messiah rising from the dead. And so that's why I think that we need to understand when Jesus comes, it's not like the disciples are running around saying, oh, yeah, we've read throughout the scriptures, our whole lives, the Messiah is going to rise from the dead. He tells them he's going to die. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. They're confused about that. And they're not really with him, uh, you know, understanding what he's talking about with the resurrection as well. And he says, I'll be raised on the third day. So that's something that, you know, we need to understand. There is resurrection, but nothing about, um, not a whole lot about the Messiah rising from the dead, the anointed one of God. Yeah. I do know also where people like Matthew Ferguson and others who say where when Paul talks about resurrection, though, he means a spiritual resurrection, and Jews did have a category for that. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, I'm well aware, obviously, that all skeptics point to a spiritual resurrection. They can't have a physical raised resurrection because it goes against their hallucination hypothesis so or their vision mm-hmm. hypothesis. So mm-hmm. if you're talking about the category of visions, I mean, they certainly believed, uh, you know, there's visions in the New Testament, but nothing, as far as we can see, it's still physically, it's a physical raised Jesus that they differentiate from subjective visions. Um, as far as a category in Jewish thought about a spiritual resurrection, some Jews do believe today in immortality of the soul. I know that that's not totally foreign to Jewish thought. Some of the Jews in your testament literature believed in that. But I don't know any category that say – they always thought it was physical as far as I can tell. They always thought it was a physical resurrection. Even corporate Israel when they were raised up as a community was physical. So I'm not too sure what Ferguson means by spiritual. Does he mean just like a visions hypothesis there? Like there's just like a – inward thing like they think paul hallucinated or something or had a subjective vision um is he referring to new testament or uh, I, that's what he said about paul yeah paul believing you said he referred to paul right 
I think you said that the, that the S scenes are also believed in something like this. That well, so so what? I mean, what has that got to do with Paul? Paul wasn't in a scene, so mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't. For me, that plays no role. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, let's go on ahead here then to the idea about resurrection of the Messiah as a messianic qualification here. Because you do say, yeah, just because he rose from the dead, it doesn't mean he's a messiah. I mean, I remember being on a show once, but hosted by an atheist, and they were asking me, okay, are there any biblical scholars that aren't Christians that believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah, Pinkus Lapides. Right. A Jewish right. New Testament scholar believes Jesus rose from the dead, does not believe he's a messiah, which seems kind of odd for us because we could spend every waking moment trying to convince a Jewish person that Jesus rose from the dead and say, and at the end say, okay, yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Too bad he's not the Messiah. That's right. And you, most people would be looking at it saying, huh? Right. What? Right, right. That was a very famous book. Um, it came out in the mid-80s. Pincus Lapid was a German, um, actually from Germany, but he was a Jewish uh, Orthodox scholar, and uh, he was very sympathetic to Christianity. He was very interested in Jewish-Christian relations, building bridges with the Christian community. He has some other books on the topic, but he really – and he also wrote a, book on the, wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount as well. Yeah, he did believe Jesus did rise from the dead, and he believed that it was factually true, um, but he did not believe that Jesus rose – that, like you said, it qualified him as a Jewish Messiah. He believed that Jesus rose for the Gentiles. So, you know, Jewish thought, as I say in my book, you know, the goal of um, part of Jewish is Israel's calling, of course, is to reach the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations with the message of the one true God. I mean, there's supposed to be a light to the nations. That's a common theme throughout the Old Testament. So Pincus Lapid believes that when Jesus rose, he really opened a door for the non-Jews to come into the covenant. Now, that, that leads to what we call dual covenant theology, that, you know, Jews have their covenant and Christians have their covenant, which is has problems, as we know, uh, scripturally. But the point is that, uh, yeah, he did believe that. He didn't think Jesus, though, was the Jewish Messiah, that God strictly brought Jesus into the world to rise from the dead, to prove, to open the door for the nations to come into the covenant. So it's fascinating. Um, he also did a debate with Walter Kaiser. On uh, it's on John Ankerberg's show on the Messianic prophecies. I think you can watch it online or read the transcript. So it was very interesting. But he was very close, I think, to really believing. Wait, who knows what happened in the end, right? Yeah, kind of like with Anthony Flew. I mean, Gary Habermas and I still discuss sometimes this day. Do you think he came to faith before he died? <laughs> so. Right, right. Who knows in the end? Only God knows. Very interesting. Absolutely. But um, yeah, go ahead. If you want to go on on the Jewish qual- the qualifications, we can talk about that or whatever. Yeah. So let, let's do talk about what exactly do you mean by Jewish qualifications there? Because some people could be one about that. I mean, what qualifications does Jesus have to meet? Right. You know, when like I said, when I was a new Christian, I read a lot of apologetics literature, as we all do. And a lot of the the books that I read kind of gave the Messianic prophecy checklist where you'd have a verse from the Old Testament out of context, and then it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's kind of like case closed. Jesus fulfills 365 Messianic prophecies. And so that settles that. And so I think we need to be a little more careful in how we approach that. It's not that there's no Messianic prophecies, not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we need to be careful. So as I say in my book, you know, most Jewish people, when they when they think about the coming of the Messiah, the ones that really look into and care, they, they kind of have some str- these criteria, you know, that the world— 
first of all, Israel is going to be restored. There's those passages in the Old Testament. We call them restoration texts. Obviously, Christians differ on their eschatology as the, on those. But the point is that when Jews read those restoration texts where the son of David or the Davidic kings and Israel and the, the nations are coming to Israel and Israel's not hated by the world and Jerusalem's at the center of everything and you know there's peace on the earth and there's peace in Israel they just don't really see Jesus rising from the dead as really having anything to do with that I mean what does that do pragmatically speaking for uh, the, the relationship between Israel and the nations and so they call it also the messianic age. Sometimes I talk about my book where there's a difference in the world. Like there's this new age where it's kind of like utopian characteristics, like the wolf lies down with the lamb and the world is, looks a lot different. All the nations um, are at harmony and world conditions are changed. So there's one view. It's kind of like a messianic age. The Messiah will usher in that in some way. So what I say in my book is that I see three things that Jesus definitely does do to to show that he there's more than that, but I mentioned three of them that he definitely shows the the, the messianic criteria met in him, and they fulfill they're fulfilled in the resurrection, uh, meaning that he is the Jewish Mashiach. And I say, if he's called to be anointed one of God, which he is, he's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And I say that he fulfills the role of the Davidic king. Because uh, you read in the Old Testament how God promised to always have someone on the line, from the line of David, on the throne of David forever. It's talked about in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, and other passages where the king is supposed to be on the throne forever. Well, Romans 1, Paul says Jesus rose from the dead. He's now on the throne of David, or he's from the line of David, and he definitely is an eternal king forever now. So that fulfills the kingly aspect. And then the priestly aspect is talked about in Melchiz- being the, from the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. We need a priest who makes intercession for us forever. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about how the priest will make intercession forever. He's a priest forever, eternally. And obviously, if Jesus rose from the dead, he can meet that criteria. He has to be a priest forever, not just a regular priest who died, right? Like a priest in the tabernacle or the temple. He's a totally different priest, an eternal priest, a divine priest. And then I talk about the prophet, that Jesus is a prophet like Moses because Moses did signs in his ministry to prove he was a prophet. And Jesus said the ultimate sign of who I am will be a rise from the dead, Matthew 12. And so Jesus fulfills the role of a prophet by doing signs and miracles and wonders. And so I talk about those three criteria, but there's also something else I mentioned, which is even more important, is that Jesus is the only Jew in the history of Judaism and the history of the Jewish world that's helped 1.4 billion non-Jews come into a covenant relationship with the God of Israel. And I talk about how he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, where the Abrahamic covenant was prophesied that the nations would come to know the one true God. And Jesus has established that. He's opened the door to the non-Jews to believe, and he could only do that through his resurrection. The death of Jesus would not get that done. It's the resurrection as well. And I talk about, it's not just statistics. It's like, well, you know, because people say, well, Islam grows, you know, it's big, and maybe that makes Islam true. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there is specific passages in the Old Testament that, Someone will come from the line of David through the seed of Abraham that will help Israel fulfill their calling to the world by being a light to the nations. And Jesus does that through his death and resurrection. He opens up the door as Israel's ideal representative to the nations to believe. And that's something how I talk about that definitely fulfills a messianic criteria there, opening the door to non-Jews to believe. And Jews have a hard time with that. I challenge Jews with that prophecies about that in the Abrahamic covenant, Isaiah 49 and others. And they're just like, well, you know, I don't really see, well, what about us? You know, I'm like, well, Paul says in Romans, there's a temporary hardening upon Israel, but the nations get to believe for now. Doors open to the non-Jewish nations to believe. 
So that's why I talk a little bit as far as being the qualified to be the Messiah through the resurrection. And one last thing, I say that he has to rise from the dead to fulfill the new covenant. Because even though the new covenant is prophesied to the northern and southern kingdoms in Jeremiah 31, it's not written to Gentiles. You know, and Paul, Paul says in Romans 11, they're grafted in. And therefore, that can only be inaugurated if Jesus rose from the dead. There's no sending of the Holy Spirit unless Jesus rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think David Marshall <clears throat> writes about some of the same kind of thing in his book, Jesus Passes the Outsider Test for Faith. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he does talk about that. You're right. He's responding to John Loftus, right? Yeah. Whatever happened to John? Anyway, he's around. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure he's doing something or whatever. I, writing who, another. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> actually, he is writing a response to uh, Lee Strober's case for miracles. And oh. in the same thing with, you know, taking titles and just twisting them a little bit and not being original at all and just having the case against miracles. Oh, uh, okay, that's cute. Right, the case against Christianity, the case against this, the case mm. against that, right? <laughs> mm. Right, we already had a book written against the case for Christ by Robert Price and those guys, right? Didn't they write a response to that, which I don't know how many people bought it, but anyway, didn't sell 7 million copies like Lee Strobel's book or 8 million copies. Anyway. Okay, well... We're going to be looking now at the case, the objections against re- Jesus being the resurrected Messiah. But give us a brief example, a synopsis. Like, if you were talking to a Jewish person, what? How would you try and convince them that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? Well, I would probably go over what I just mentioned. Let's say I'm sharing the resurrection with them, and I'd say, well, and I think you and I have had conversations with Jewish anti-missionaries where we've tried to show them, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. Some some are just like, who cares, right? <laughs> I mean, right. so what he rose. Yeah, I, I remember when we had an event here that Michael Brown was supposed to debate Asher Norman, and he didn't, he wasn't able to show up for some reason, so he, they called him this Jewish rabbi, <clears throat> and afterwards I went up to him and asked the rabbi and said, well, what about the resurrection of Jesus? And he said, oh, it didn't happen. And then turned around and started talking to someone else, and oh, Thank you. That clears it up. Right. I mean, that settles that. Well, yeah, I know how you would have responded to that. You know how to deal with it. You didn't have the time. He didn't give you the time, I should say. Yeah. So if I was talking to a Jewish person trying to convince them Jesus was a Messiah via his resurrection, I would mention exactly what I just mentioned to you, that I would go into the Old Testament. I'd use the Davidic covenant passage. I mentioned the priestly issue in Psalm 110. I'd mention the prophet issue like Moses. And then I would take them through the Torah the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, we call it, or you know, the law, we call it the law. I just don't like the word law that much. It's confusing, but <laughs> too general. But um, when you go into the um, the end of the Torah, you know, Moses. If you read Deuteronomy, that God tells Moses that he's going to one day circumcise Israel in their hearts. He talks about, I've not given you eyes to see or ears to hear. I think this is in like Deuteronomy twenty nine to thirty around that range. He said, I've not given you eyes to see or ears to hear, but one day I'm going to circumcise you know, your people in the hearts and and the flesh. So, you know, I basically think you see some hints of the coming of the new covenant, that God's going to bring a, a greater covenant where he's going to do something unique. And then I would take that Jewish person then to Jeremiah 31, show them the new covenant passage, which is written, obviously, the northern southern kingdoms, um, and why God says he's going to do this covenant. The kingdoms are divided. God's going to unite them through this covenant. He's going to write the law in their hearts, as it says in Jeremiah 31. And then I would take them maybe Ezekiel 36, talk about the spirit, God placing his spirit within Israel's hearts. And then 
So I built a case that why, how God's going to do this, how he's going to inaugurate this covenant. And then I would talk about how Jesus then promised the coming of the Spirit in John 14 to 15 to 16, and talk about how the Spirit will be poured out in the book of Acts. And then I would tie that in with the Abrahamic covenant of how the message is to the nations as well, that the covenant Abraham Abraham comes designed to reach the nations. And I show how in the book of Acts that um, I show elsewhere in the New Testament, the gospel did go out to the nations and that that's prophetic. And that can only happen through Jesus's resurrection. So for me, I would probably start with the Old Testament with the Jewish person who's interested and then go into the New Testament, show how it's fulfilled through the resurrection and show how the resurrection of Jesus is directly tied to these covenants in Israel's history. It's not like something the Christian church invented, right? It has nothing to do with Jewish thought, right? I'm going to show them it's definitely tied to Israel's history. It's, it's, it's absolutely, and it's related to Israel's exodus in relation to Passover and the uh, coming out of exodus. You know, it's, it's the bondage of sin under Pharaoh coming out to a new way of life, which is the resurrection, you know, this new exodus that they experienced. So you could kind of use some typology there as well. So that's what I, that's how I would kind of do it. Is it successful? Not always. I sat down with the Jewish student at Ohio State once and did it, and he didn't even know any of those passages were in the Old Testament. So I just, it was the first time he'd ever seen them. Well, of course, it's not always successful. There's no magic bullet, right. unfortunately, to do right. all Right. Oh, there isn't. I thought I thought the gospel was a formula. We just did it this way at work, right? <laughs> mm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, right? It's pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm. Yeah. So that's now, the way I would kind of handle it. But I think you and I are going to be challenged, as we've already seen, that the most challenging group of Jews that you and I have dealt with are the anti-missionaries. And they're not a majority, the average Jewish person you and I would probably encounter secular Jewish people that don't really have any particular belief in God or the Messiah, and they're just not very interested. And so a lot of times we're trying to get them just to get they care about the issue of truth. But I'd say the anti-missionary is the one you, you and I dealt with some of them. They're the ones that kind of know the arguments, and they're the ones that write the books and the websites, Jews for Judaism, and some of these other places where they really try to provide responses to the resurrection. But I would say, from my experience, that most Jews' anti-missionary groups are using basically the standard skeptical arguments that Richard Carrier uses or Robert Price uses or some of these mythicism things, right? So I think they're using a lot of the same arguments in the end. this point i'd like to remind when you're listening to deeper waters podcast everything we do here is supported by listeners like you and we really could use your support and if you want to give that which would mean so much to us especially as we get close to the end of the year end of the year giving is coming up please go to my website at deeperwatersapologetics.com there's a link on the site help support the work of deeper waters christian ministries you click on that, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Dakona, as Eric has pointed out quite a few times here. And you go, you make your donation, then you get in touch with with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. That, they will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And uh, you can also buy 
ebooks that I have, one that I've written, I'm working on another one right now, but one that I've written is A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. I've contributed to two, to a few others, <laughs> more than two. Uh, the Mention of Ours Project is a very popular one right now. Hey, Nick. Yes. I have one of your books. I bought the one you wrote with J.P. Holding on Inerrancy. Uh-huh. I bought that one. It's good. So there, I have one of Nick's books he co-wrote. Go ahead. Well, actually, we co-wrote two on Inerrancy. Oh, you do? Okay, I'll have to look at that. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, we have Defining Inerrancy. Is that one you got? Whatever the earliest one was. That was defining. Yep. Then we got contextualizing. No, I don't have that one. Oh, I'll have to get that one too. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. There was also Groundlets, God and Natural Disasters, and Christian Answers, This Generation's Questions. Oh, yeah. that's a, and, I have that one too, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. And if you can't do any of this, and please just go on uh, iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters podcast. I, it would mean so much here. Now... Eric, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, well, if they want to find out more about me, they can go to my blog, thinkapologetics.com. I am a support-based missionary. I have been for 15 years when I direct these. It's the way I direct these apologetic ministries at Ohio State and Columbus State, which I've had your dad, father-in-law to speak there, as he knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I am a support-based missionary. Um, I do a lot of work outside the campus, too, a lot of online stuff and a lot of speaking. So, but if you do want to support what we do, um, if you just go to uh, cjfm.org, cjfm.org, and type in my name, Eric Chabot, C-H-A-B-O-T. Actually, it's under the heading there, under who we are. You can find me on there. But there's a place where you could donate to what we do. Um, so cjfm.org is where you can find as far as a donation you can make a donation there if you want to support our apologetic work. Well, let's get into these objections and that are presented to to Christianity. And one of them is one that I think you're getting at when you talk about Robert Price, and that's legend. The obvious is just legends that showed up later, and I think we can include with this the idea of cognitive dissonance, that, you know, the Gospels, they couldn't handle hearing the news that Jesus had just died, and so they all experienced cognitive dissonance. Right, I talk about both of those, and I don't I don't really see a lot of credence to, I mean, the legend objection, I'm not sure how much weight that has anymore, um, since I said before that Paul's letters are the earliest records we have, and the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is dated, as we know, we've been over this a hundred times, with Gary Habermas um, and Mike have talked about this. You know, The creed is dated very early in 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of the earliest records we have for Jesus' resurrection, um, that Paul received that information at an earlier date before he even wrote it. And then Paul's other letters, you know, like Romans and some other ones mention Jesus' resurrection as well. So... It's really hard to say the thing evolved into a legendary teaching several decades later when you have Paul receiving his information before he even wrote it. It looks like the resurrection was being proclaimed very early from the start of the movement. And as I said, you start with the oral tradition in Paul. I think that's hard to you know, say that it's just a legend that developed and developed decade after decade after decade. Then we're back to the issue, can you trust something that's been written 30, 40 years later, like we talked about before, a high-impact event, and yes, you can. I think we've shown that. So I think the legend hypothesis is nonsense. Um, the cognitive dissonance thing is, like you said, the disciples maybe were hurting or upset after Jesus died. They couldn't reconcile that in their minds. 
And so they basically, to fill in that dissonance, they just kind of made up a resurrection story. Um, you know, they didn't really see a raised Jesus. They didn't touch a raised Jesus. They made up the appearances and everything, and then that helped them cope with their dissonance. Um, not necessarily because they're like deceivers. They're trying to deceive people just because they're psychologically mistaken, you know, that they have some psychological issue here with this dissonance. Um, but that leads to problems, as I say in the book. I mean, you're back to, you know, they basically had some sort of hallucination or something. They thought they saw a raised Jesus, but they really didn't. And then they, you know, wrote it down or they had some sort of subjective vision. That's not what happened. So it really leads to um, how would cognitive dissonance lead to all these different changes as well? Their devotional practice, or they worship Jesus, which is forbidden in Judaism and all these other issues. So cognitive dissonance is, is not that far away from something like, you know, dealing with the hallucination objection or another psychological objection where there's just a product of their minds, but it's not based on reality. And I think that we, as I've said in the book, I think we know that it was a physical raised Jesus that they think they saw. And most and most scholars, as I say in the book, believe Jesus, they, the disciples saw something. They're not disagreeing that disciples had experiences. The issue is what can account for it? You know, what's the best explanation, you know, for those resurrection appearances? Yeah. And uh, despite what people read on the internet, mythicism is not a live contender at all in these debates. Right. Well, the only one as we know that's keeping mythicism going is Richard Carrier, maybe a couple other people, but it's I don't really know anybody that's dealing with it. I can't think of any places I'm really hearing about it too much anymore. Um, I think Richard Carrier has another book coming out, like a shorter version on his historicity of Jesus book or something, but I don't really know anybody else that's really writing a lot of books on it. Ralph was it Ralph Lancaster and I don't think he's really well known. Maybe a couple others, but it's such a it's a very minority view. I think you mean Raphael. Raphael Lancaster. I'm sorry. Right. I know you wrote something about that a ways back. Yeah, I've referred to him as Raphael Lancaster, a scholarship disaster. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I don't really deal. I don't even campus see a ton of mythers anymore. I haven't run into anybody that's a mither lately. I mean, uh, you mentioned. Um, Frank Zindler, uh, he lives here where I live. He's from Columbus, Ohio, and he came out to what your father-in-law's talk six or seven years ago. He also did a speech here for the atheist group on Jesus being a myth, and I was there in the front row. And it, all the arguments he used were so outdated. I mean, they were all outdated from way back in the borrowed from myth, you know, Mithra and all these mythological constructs and religious plagiarism. It's just it's stuff that's so outdated. So anyway. But let's go to an objection that is used, and especially used by a among atheist critics, and that's and this gets into the whole atheistic presuppositionalism, the objection of miracles, where it's you know, I, I find it bizarre when atheists come in and say, Well, you believe that a man turned water into wine it's like Well, yeah, that's because I believe in miracles. Why is that a problem to my position if you say, Well, your account must be false because it contains miracles? Right. Well, that's a metaphysical issue. I mean, you you and I know that the rejection of miracles saying that the reality around us and the reality around us, we know miracles don't happen. That's a metaphysical claim. You're making a claim about reality. That's not based on science. If you come along and say science says that no miracles happen, well, that's your epistemology. That's the way you gather knowledge. But you're using your epistemology to back up your metaphysical starting points. And that's kind of circular. And so I don't really know how anybody would establish that in reality there is no uh, miraculous realm. 
obviously, if Jesus rose from the dead, that that fixes that problem. But, you know, Craig Keener's double volume, which you've talked about, you know, that has tons of documentation of miracles happening. And I think a lot of people, when they make those comments, you know, they're re- they need to realize they're doing philosophy. That's a philosophical issue, you know, when they reject miracles ahead of time, you know, without even looking at the evidence. And so I will say that you and I, and I think anybody would agree we need to be we're 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 careful and skeptical about some miracle claims. We don't accept all miracle claims. We're not gullible. I don't if someone said there's Martians in my backyard barbecuing, obviously I'm going to say that's just complete nonsense. I need to see some evidence. I need to see it because that's not an everyday occurrence. And so I agree that the resurrection of Jesus is a rare event. It's not like anything else. It's a one-time event. And that's one of the reasons it is a miracle. If there are tons of them happening today, it wouldn't have been that unique, the Jesus rising from the dead. So we need to be a little skeptical and gullible. I mean, we're not going to be gullible about miracles, but I think we have some criteria to evaluate whether miracles taken place. And I think Jesus's resurrection, would you consider his entire ministry, the cumulative case for his entire ministry, that he'd be just the kind of person that would rise from the dead. He would just be the type of person that God would raise from the dead. He fulfills the character attributes, his sinless life, his miracles. I think he would be the kind of person that God would uh, raise from the dead. So, yeah, so that's the way I kind of approach it, and I take it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, I also think it's kind of bizarre to me when people say to me, well, what about miracles in other religions? Why do you only accept miracles that take place in your own religion? I said, well, you know, if you show me good evidence for a miracle outside my religion— I believe it. Why would that be a problem for me at all? Right. Well, like I said, I have no problem with looking at other miracles and other religions. It's not that we're opposed to it. Um, you just have to weigh it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, if there's miracles in Islam, you know, I'm welcome. I'm open to look at them and see what the evidence is. Uh, Judaism isn't an issue because in Ju- since Christianity and Judaism are wedded together, really, I mean, you can't really – I mean, they're they're divorced today from some people's perspective, but we know that our faith was birthed in the Jewish world and in Israel's history, and miracles are already thing that happened there. So I know that's just the non-starter, really. When it comes to other religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever it is, I'll be happy to value any miracle claim. And I'm not going to say it's impossible for God to do a miracle in another religion for some reason. I'm not going to say that's off the books, but I'm just saying we have to evaluate it on a case-by-case basis. So no, we're not opposed to look at that at all. Mm-hmm. And what do you would you say to the idea when someone says, well, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence? Yeah, well, as I, I say in my book, um, I think they're equivocating on that word extraordinary. And generally, as I say in the book, as you know, I say that I kind of lay out the syllogism about extraordinary claims. And I say that basically it seems like when someone asks that question, they're making the the evidence to be so – strong that no evidence will ever convince them. It's like Richard uh, or William Lane Craig debating, uh, I think it was Keith Parsons or somebody years ago in the resurrection debate. And he said, what would convince you that Jesus rose from the dead? And I think it was Parsons who said a 50 foot Jesus would have to appear to me right now. I think when they ask for extraordinary evidence, they really don't know exactly what they mean. So the best thing to do is ask them how to clarify the word extraordinary. And in most cases, they just don't really know and obviously, sometimes they may say some out of evidence that just isn't possible. I mean, they might say, well, it doesn't matter. No evidence is going to convince me that Jesus rose from the dead because my mind's made up anyway. There's no possibility for resurrection. Well, now we're back to philosophy. So, you know, it just depends how they define the word extraordinary. 
Or when I get to that point of people and I always say, look, if evidence will not change your mind, will not change your position, then your position isn't based on evidence to begin with. That's right. Did you see there's a there's a clip between Hugh Ross and Peter Atkins on Unbelievable? And at one point they asked Peter Atkins, what would convince him the God? There's a creator. And, and Peter Atkins basically says there's no amount of evidence. He says there's nothing. There's no criteria. There's no evidence that I would consider because he thinks that if he did accept it, he'd be nuts. Like there's something wrong with him psychologically. And so basically he, he commits he, he admits the fact that really there's no evidence that he would even consider for God's existence. So what's the point <laughs> at that point? I know Peter Bogosian has written in his book how he says, I, says, you know, if all the stars in the sky came together and formed a sense such as, I think it's like, I am God, believe in me, and everyone saw it. This could be suggestive, but we could all be experiencing a delusion. And at this point, I, I also want to say to these kinds of apes, okay, so what you're telling me is you require a personal experience before you become a Christian, but any time a Christian comes to you and gives a personal experience that led to them becoming a Christian, you'll discount that immediately. Right. Well, that that's right. I once asked a student at I State what would convince him, and he said that's what he would have to have a sign from God. You know, they say that a lot. They need a direct sign. And I, I said, well, what would you do with it once you got the sign? And he said, well, I'd have to check it to make sure I wasn't like you know having like an some sort of psychological delusion or something. And I'd have to check this and that. And you know, so right away he had this criteria he would use, you know, to evaluate the sign and. And it just sounded to me like, well, at the end of the day, even if God did come to you directly, you're going to question it nonstop. I mean, you're not going to you're going to be skeptical again. So, you know, it just it, you just go round and round on that on the signs issue, needing a direct sign. Okay. And what about then? The next one you got here is the need for present day analogs for miraculous events. This is what we call, I think, also Lessing's ditch as well, and then. Torlestress's objection that, you know, we don't see miracles happening today, so they didn't happen in the past. Right. That's the um, analogous um, kind of uh, analogical objection you know, I talk about. Um, the need for present-day analogies for miraculous historical events. So that was um, – someone wrote about that a long time ago. It's not a new objection. It was written about in the 1600s or 1800s. Um, and basically, if we don't see, it's like a student said to me once, you know, he came out, we were doing an outreach table at Iowa State, and he said, hey, do you see, do you see resurrections any around here, any around here today? Do you see people rising from the dead? He, he says that to me really in a firm way, kind of direct in my face. And I'm like, well, no, of course I don't. I said, that's why I think Jesus is unique. I said, because if everything's repeatable, it needs to be repeatable in today's world, and it means it didn't happen in the past. If you can't repeat it in the present, then you wouldn't know anything in the past. Or we, there's a lot of things you wouldn't know in the past because they're all singular one-time events, rare events, the Big Bang, the beginning of life. There's all kinds of things that are not repeatable today. And he just thought that was so cool to be able to say, you know, well, we don't see resurrections today, so it must not have happened in the past. I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. It's exactly why, why it's a miracle. It's a rare event. And, of course, that's why you don't – if that's true, you wouldn't accept a lot of things in the past because a lot of things are not repeatable. So it's kind of back to similar – Hume had a similar argument as well, David Hume. So it, it doesn't work out at all. Yeah, then, of course, we've got Craig Keener's research, which I, I always challenge atheists and come and say, okay, go read Craig Keener and come back and we'll talk about it. And generally, I do not find atheists who are willing to go and read 
Craig Keener, which I, I usually start chatting with people and say, yeah, yeah, I understand. Contrary thought can be a scary thing, can't it? Yeah, well, yeah, they're skeptical of anything if they don't see it directly. I mean, it's got to be seen right in front of them. But as I say in my book, as you know, a lot of our beliefs are inferential. I mean, we don't see things in the past directly. We didn't experience them. We make inferences. You know, inference is the best explanation for why something happened. And so that's the way we gather information. It's the way we come to conclusions. That's that's part of the, the way we approach the existence of God is making inferences. Mm-hmm. So let's go on to the next part here where you talk about false testimonies. I mean, people can say things that are false all the time. It's especially novice in the political realm where we nah. you've got so many questions about he said, she said, and just because someone said it, it doesn't mean it's true. So maybe we just have false testimonies in the Gospels. Right. Well, that, yeah, I don't think the false testimonies hypothesis is very, I don't think it's really held on to by too many New Testament scholars. Just like we said before, most scholars, including Bart Ehrman and others, agree that they think that the disciples are sincere and they thought they sincerely saw Jesus rise from the dead. So it's not that uh, they just, they think that they're liars but in the false testimony hypothesis, yeah, you'd have to have a motive for them lying, like I say in my book, whether it's financial gain or sexual desire or the pursuit of power. Those are three kind of criteria I use that are borrowed from James Warner Wallace. I admit it. I got it from him, yep. um, which I know him and I like him, so I'll, I'll admit it. I'll give him the credit. Um, but yeah, I don't really see that criteria within the New Testament as far as the motive to lie, as far as to make it up. As I say, there is the Sinai requirement for the test, everything has to be confirmed by two or three or more witnesses. And, of course, breaking the Torah, violating the Torah, bearing false witness is very serious. As Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know, if we're lying about this, you know, if this really didn't happen, we're a bunch of liars and we're deluding people. So I think there's sincerities there. That's not the issue. I don't think they lied about it. I think the biggest debate, as I say in my book, is over what they really saw, whether the resurrection appearances is what can account for their experience. So that's why I think most scholars hone in on that one and just kind of, you know, constantly debate what did they really see? You know, can it be accounted for by hallucination or vision hypothesis or apparitions or something like that? But, Eric, all the accounts we have are by people who were biased, and you can't trust a biased source, can you? Uh, Yes, you can if you define bias as wanting to get the story right and having a very strong motive to get the story right because you're passionate about it just like anyone that experiences a high impact event and retells it such as a world war ii veteran or a someone who lost a loved one or a holocaust survivor i mean you were there and you want to get the story right so obviously you're biased to the extent that you're passionate about it and you you know you have an emotional investment in it there's nothing wrong with that but it doesn't mean that you can't be objective of all can't tell the truth so I think a lot of times you hear the word bias, a lot of people assume the New Testament authors are just so emotionally invested or have such a strong emotional investment that they would exaggerate and lie about it. And that's not necessarily always the case. Mm-hmm. Let's also go with a question about the barrier of Jesus, because you and I both know about Bart Ehrman in the past few years. He used a book where he came and remember, now he doesn't believe that Jesus had a barrier and this really is a minority position, I think, among scholars. But was Jesus buried? Yeah, I think he's borrowing from John Dominic Crossan's view, right? The dogs ate it, the body. Uh-huh. I think he's borrowing yeah. going back to something that was out a long time ago. So, 
Yeah, some people think that Jesus, because he was a criminal, that, you know, obviously the way he would have been buried is the way a lot of criminals were buried is just put in a pit in the ground. And, you know, that was it. They would just bury them in the ground. And obviously they could have been eaten by a dog later. It's definitely possible. But that really has challenges from what we know about archaeology. We've discovered enough in archaeology to find some of the tombs of that time period, the way they were buried, the ossuaries, and of course the tombs themselves we found. And they have found rock-cut tombs, um, you know, like Jesus would have been buried in because we know Jesus was poor. As far as we know, he didn't come from a wealthy family, and we know that he was a carpenter's son. We don't know a ton about his childhood, obviously, because it's not what the Gospels are about. But the point is that it would make perfect sense that Joseph, Joseph Marathia would be the one to give him the proper burial because Joseph Marathia had money and he could afford a rock cut tomb. And he's the one that allowed Jesus to be buried in his tomb. And like I quote Jody Magnuson here, she's a Jewish archaeologist who's not a Christian at all. or even I don't think she believes in God. She's just like a non-religious Jew who does archaeological digs in Israel. And she says, dude, but she specializes in tombs. And like I say there, there's nothing that uh, we, as far as we know from archaeology now, that Jesus' story in the Gospels, the story of his burial matches the current archaeological data that we found these rock-cut tombs and the way people were buried matches up with what would have happened with Jesus. And then, you know, some people think that maybe there's a, um, maybe Joseph Marathia moved Jesus to like a temporary tomb before the uh, the final burial. Um, and then maybe the burial story is made up after that. But if you're going to not go, you trust the Gospels, they're not reliable, and come up with all kinds of alternatives, I always say to people, you can assert anything you want. An assertion is something that isn't based on evidence. You have to provide evidence for your assertion. And so you can assert that there's a temporary burial place that Joseph used. There's no evidence for it. You can assert that Jesus was buried in the ground or something like that. There's no evidence for it. I mean, you just have to give good reasons why you reject the the, the burial counts in the four Gospels. I mean, what, what, why would Joseph Arimathea be the main actor in that thing? He's the one that comes along who was part of the, the same group that put Jesus to trial, you know, the Sanhedrin or the, uh, you know, the Sa- Sadducee. You know, they did not work favorable toward Jesus. And yet he's one of the key leaders there is the one who offers Jesus a proper burial. Like I said in the book, I don't see any good evidence for Barterman's view. And I think it's an anti-miraculous presupposition to begin with, to be honest. Mm. Well, let's go with one that you will experience if you talk to Jewish people or anti-missionary Jews, but you're not going to encounter from your everyday atheists. That's that Jesus did not bring redemption to Israel. Right. Well... That's what I talk, talked about a little bit before, is that when Jewish people thought about the redemption of Israel, it's not about getting someone's soul saved and going to heaven. Um, that's not really what they think of the redemption of Israel. It it's, involves more of an earthly, physical thing. So when Jesus preaches the kingdom of God is his main message, which he does, a Jewish mindset would have thought, okay, this is something on earth, just as Jesus says in the disciples' prayer. You know, He says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's not escapism into heaven. Jews would think, okay, the kingdom of God is on earth. It's a redemption of Israel and the whole world. It's an earthly concrete existence. And so most people thought the redemption of Israel, most Jews would think the Messiah comes. Like I've said before, he's going to restore 
Israel. He's going to restore them. He's also going to restore the world, and the world's going to be at peace, and Israel's going to be at peace, and the Messiah is going to be reigning from Jerusalem physically. And when Peter says in Acts 1, when he says, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Peter was reading the prophets, and he knew that there were some passages about the restoration of Israel, and so he asked Jesus about that there. And that's kind of what he's thinking of, too, that redemption of Israel, redemption of a physical earthly existence. And so that's kind of what they go off of. It's not so much like an escapism into heaven. That doesn't really sit well with them. And so that's kind of what the redemption of Israel is about. It's about obviously Israel not being hated by the nations. It's where their peace and their land, not at fighting with the Palestinians and all that's done away with. And there's really just peace there. And so it's very earthly. And so that's kind of what they're thinking about. When they think of like the redemption of Israel. Yeah, but Jesus still didn't bring it about. So what would you tell to a Jewish person? That, oh. Well, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then why, why isn't all this going on? I would say that when it comes to prophecy, there's a contingent element in prophecy, meaning that if you look at the way God says things are going to happen in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's based on repentance. And so I think that we could say that Jesus says in Matthew 23, at the end of Matthew 23, he tells the Jewish audience, he says, you will not come and see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, until you say. And so I think we could argue that Israel's Messiah will not come until Israel receives him and is open to him for who he is being the Messiah. And I think that God is, Jesus has not redeemed Israel because Israel isn't ready and they don't receive him. And so Paul says there's a partial hardening on Israel now. I'd also say even if Jesus did not bring redemption to Israel, remember the Abrahamic covenant is designed to bring redemption to the nations. And so Jesus has brought redemption to the nations, and he's doing that to fulfill Israel's calling as well. And so he has fulfilled that covenant, and he is fulfilling that covenant. It's progressively being fulfilled. But one day he will bring redemption to Israel, depending on what you believe about your eschatology. I believe he'll. I believe Jesus will reign from Jerusalem one day. I don't think he's coming back to California. So, you know, I mean, if you whatever you believe about that. But the point is that I would tell a Jewish person he will redeem Israel one day. But for now, you need redemption through him, through his atonement. And that's what we're asking you to do today is accept him as your atonement through his death and resurrection. Okay, let's look also briefly, since we've only got a few minutes left. I'm going to try to combine all this into one thing, though. And that's the idea of uh, visions, apparitions, and hallucinations. Yeah, well... I talked about, we talked about how the appearances, there's no doubt many scholars believe the disciples thought they saw or raised Jesus. That's not really debated as far as their sincerity of belief. So what can account for those appearances? We weren't there. We, you know, we have the written testimony that they physically touched Jesus. They experienced him. Uh, they talked with him. They ate with him. He taught them. And so skeptics come along and scholars that have you know, certainly, certainly problems with miracles with the raised Jesus, they say, well, maybe they just had these visions. You know, there's visions in the New Testament, subjective visions. Peter has visions. Paul has visions. Paul talks about these visionary experiences. So maybe that's what happened with the raised Jesus. There wasn't really a physical raised Jesus outside of them that they saw. It's really an internal thing in their minds. They think they see Jesus, but it's really just a product of their minds. And that's, somewhat related to the hallucination hypothesis, because hallucinations, they believe that the disciples did not see a physical raised Jesus. It was a product of their minds as well. They believed in their mind. I mean, it was a trick of their minds. You know, they thought they saw Jesus, but they really didn't. They hallucinated. The problem is with um, these 
explanations is Paul knows the difference. I think the disciples as well know the difference between visions and a physical raised Jesus. They did talk about visions, but they also know resurrection was bodily. It was a physical thing from the Old Testament literature. And I think that we see that they differentiate between visions and the physical raised Jesus in the New Testament. So it's not like they're ignorant of the distinction. And then, of course, of course, I mean, we have the Gospels. Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. You know, a ghost does not have flesh and blood. Touch me. Jesus challenges them to touch him. And so hallucinations are hard to clarify because also you have to have kind of like a group expectation. The people have to be expecting the event to happen. So that means the disciples are expecting him to rise from the dead. They're emotionally excited about it. Obviously, we don't see that in the Gospels. They're just the opposite. They're rejected and down and upset. doesn't seem they're expecting a resurrection at all. It doesn't seem they're emotionally excited about it, which would provide the conditions for an hallucination. Obviously, we can't psychoanalyze them as well. And then the uh, the apparition category is more like a ghostly figure where they might see Jesus and think, but it's really more like a ghost, some sort of spirit that, uh, you know, in the ancient world, they knew what apparitions were. There were those kinds of things in that time. But as I said, you know, it's it, we're kind of getting back to the issue of um, the physicality of the resurrection and whether disciples knew the difference between apparitions and resurrection, which I say they do or they did at that time period. You know, I think we're not giving the disciples enough credit or New Testament authors. They couldn't tell the difference between resurrection and apparition or resurrection and a vision or resurrection and a hallucination. I think it's pretty clear they did know the differences between those things. You know, then again, at the end of the day, we uh, we weren't there to see it. But we know that Paul, you know, talks about the continuity between our resurrection bodies and Jesus's resurrection that will be physically resurrected as he was physically resurrected. Um, there's some evidence about continuity there between what happened with us between Jesus's physical resurrection. And so I think that all in all, the evidence is there. There's a physical raised Jesus. I mean, we could provide exegetical evidence, but, you know, we have to exegete the passages, all of them, and look at the totality of Scripture. But I think Jews did believe, you know, there was more of a physical raised Jesus that N.T. Wright highlights in his book, uh, Resurrection of the Son of God. So at the end of the day, I think Jesus was raised physically, so in the flesh. As we're getting close to the end here, we've only got a couple minutes left where I start saying the final moments and such. What would you say to a non-Messianic Jewish person who could be listening to this right now? Okay, you mean like someone who's not, who doesn't believe in Jesus or just like a Christian? Or? Right. Someone oh. who doesn't believe in Jesus but is Jewish. Well, I would say what I say to them is I say to all college students, you have to be a bit of a truth seeker. You have to care about truth. And so I would just say that if you care about truth, you're on a truth quest and not a happiness quest, meaning that you care whether the claims of what we've talked about today are true, then then at least pursue it and go after it and ask yourself, what if this is really true? Is it true that Jesus rose from the dead? That means I can know who I am. I can know where I'm going. I can answer the worldview questions. And this unpacks the history of mankind, whether Jesus rose from the dead and whether God exists. Antony Flew said, if Jesus rose from the dead, the God of the Bible is the one true God. And so that would define the one God if Jesus rose from the dead. So that's what I'd say to them. Mm-hmm. Just please, you know, I hope you pursue the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what would you say to a Christian out there? I mean, what should we keep in mind in dialogue with our Jewish neighbors? You said as far as talking to Christians about it? As far for Christians talking to Jews, how should Christians talk to Jews? I 
I would say to Christians, if you um, if you want to get more educated about this topic, I would say read Michael Brown's books. Like you mentioned earlier, the Michael Brown Jewish Objections to Jesus series. Um, you can read my book. You can read. There's all kinds of resources on Jewish Christians' relations. There's a book called Our Father Abraham: The Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith by Marvin Wilson. That's a classic. Uh, there's his book by Marvin Wilson, the same author called Our Hebraic Heritage. Um, there's just a ton of books to build your knowledge of Judaism and the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. So I would just tell them to just get educated about Judaism and learn about the context so you can relate to them in their own context versus using non-Jewish terminology and non-Jewish context, which kind of can be a turnoff and just doesn't make any sense to them. I've seen it happen where Christians witness to Jews and they don't know like what the context is and what to say, and they kind of turn the Jewish person off. So it's always good to use context and learn. you can learn about that through just reading and studying. The book is Resurrection of a Jewish Messiah by Eric Chabot. It's a really short read. You could probably read it in a day or two if you really just sat down and did it. It's available right now on Amazon. At the time of this recording, the Kindle version is $6.99. Paperback is $7.99. Now, Eric, do you have a blog, a website, an email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more. Yeah, my blog is thinkapologetics.com, thinkapologetics.com, and my contact information is on there. You can also leave a comment on my blog, too. I usually get the comments, so that's where they can find me. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final messages that you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters audience today? Yeah, I just hope that um, you know you understand the importance of the uh, the Jewish background of the resurrection and how it relates to Jesus' messiahship. It's something that needs to be taught, and I hope that uh, you'll take it seriously. That's all I want to say. And I do hope you still affirm the virgin birth. Yes, I'll affirm. affirm it for the second time today. <laughs> just have to make sure. Yep. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Stephen Parrish on. Dr. Stephen Parrish talking about his book, Atheism, A Critical Analysis. For now, I am Nick Peters, I'm signing off, and I still do affirm the virgin birth. Have a good day.